All right, so last week we talked about the importance of observation. Um, hopefully you got some time with your, uh, with your passage there in Colossians to just begin practicing some of these um, disciplines of observation and, and really forcing yourself to stay in the text longer than maybe you normally would. Uh, I know it's easy, um, especially if you're used to reading for breadth. We talked about breadth, like reading for breadth and reading for depth. Um, especially if you're used to reading for breath, maybe that's your time in the morning. I know a lot of people, uh, if you're going to read the Bible, maybe the morning time is kind of the only time that works for you. And so uh, usually if you're like me, I don't, I don't study like real in depth in the morning. It just, I don't work out in the morning because it's the morning and that's only what crazy people do. And uh, and I don't uh, I do in depth Bible study in the mornings. Um, that's just how I, my brain works. And so uh, for a lot of people, um, what ends up happening then is that you probably possibly uh, never actually get to the depth portion of Bible study. And so hopefully uh, kind of working through this observation um, portion kind of helped you in that. Uh, yeah. So um, this week, what we're going to be talking about is getting more to the interpretation part. And this is what I talked about last week with uh, with my issue with the SOAP acronym. This is the part that's really missing with that is the interpretation part. Uh, and like I said, um, sometimes when you get into a small group, uh, people confuse application with interpretation uh, because or yeah, confuse interpretation for application. And that's where you get into this, like, well, this is what the Bible means to me. And what I think most people mean is this is how the, this text applies to me. Um, but we, we want to be real careful that we're not mis like swapping out, uh, application for interpretation because the, the, any scripture will have a specific meaning within that. And so our job is to, is to pull meaning out of the text. It's not to uh, read meaning into the text. It's really to pull it out of the text. And so uh, we talked a little bit last week that exegesis uh, is pulling meaning out of the text. So when we do biblical exegesis, what we're doing is we're studying it in such a way uh, to really understand the meaning of the text. Eisegesis is more uh, reading meaning into the text. And so that's where we can get into trouble if we really quickly pass over uh, the interpretive steps um, to really understand what the original audience would have uh, understood this text to mean. So um, yeah, biblical exegesis gives the biblical gives the biblical context rather than our own context control over the meaning of the text. So, like I said, it gives the biblical context so the the situation that the original um, audience would have been in it gives that control over the meaning of the text. The way that the original audience would have heard the words of that text. Uh, dictates the meaning of it. Uh, the way that they heard it will often be different than the way that we'll hear it just because of our culture. And so um, what we want to do in, in biblical exegesis is to listen intently until we know how the text fits within uh, the overall message of the book. And so this is where, uh, especially um, this is easier if you're in uh, like an epistle, like First Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, uh, to really read the book as a whole, uh, preferably in one sitting, but really to to read it in as few of sittings as you possibly can, so that that way you can get kind of the overarching view of the book itself. So Salt Company started going through the book of Ephesians. And so what we did um, uh, uh, with, it was me, Stephen, Ernie, 
Laura, uh, Seth, a couple other guys. And what we did is we sat down. Um, and before we came to our meeting is we read the book of Ephesians, uh, all in one like sitting. And so what you, what happens when you do that, uh, especially with Ephesians, which is really cool is that you, you begin to see, Oh, the first three chapters of Ephesians is specifically like a, um, you could, you could put it like, like doxology and theology. Like it's, 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 practical in the sense that Paul is writing the book and he's he's giving you a lot of theology on the nature of salvation and the nature of union union with Christ and how that should influence union with fellow believers like he gives a lot of theology on the front end and then the set then the last three chapters of the book uh, are are real practical you could say not that theology isn't practical but uh, he begins to apply that theology to uh, to marriage relationships to family relationships to parents and children to uh, to slaves and masters like to like it's real practical uh, in in how this theology like gets down on the ground, you know. Now, if you didn't read the book as a whole, you'd probably miss that Paul has broken up the book into really two sections, the first three chapters and the last three chapters. That's really important, especially when you're thinking of how, how to teach this book. And so kind of what you see, um, if you could see it, uh, the, the SALT teaching schedule really does kind of lay out that way, um, where we spend the first, like, all the way pretty much, uh, it's until basically the end of February, we're in those first three chapters. And then, uh, after that we start getting into like a, almost like a Christian living series, which really isn't a separate thing. It's just like the natural overflow of what Paul has just said uh, in the first three chapters of Ephesians. So all that to say, that's part of why it's really important as much as you can read whatever book you're studying, uh, in as few of sittings as possible. So that way you can get like that 50,000 foot view. Um, and it'll help you understand kind of the Kind of the flow of the text and that's kind of where we get uh in this last part of these slides uh it sees the structure and the emphasis of the text and um especially as you start getting to uh like particularly with the view of writing um, messages is you want the emphasis of the message to be the emphasis of the text. And what people can get in trouble with sometimes is that um something that's interesting in the text uh, may not be the main emphasis of the text. And what can happen is, is that all of a sudden that interesting thing that's in the text becomes the main point of the message when really the emphasis of the text needs to drive the emphasis of the message. And so, um, again, a lot, a lot of this is, is uh, I'm trying to help you see the importance of the exegetical work that we want to do in understanding the meaning of the text, because uh, it really will translate real practically into how we communicate the meaning of that text to the people who are listening. So, so it gives um, the context control. Uh, I, I remember um, going through one of my uh, hermeneutics classes, a uh, little phrase was context is king. And we talked about this a little bit last week where uh, it's real easy um, to I, I want to say, I want to, I want to speak about this. And so I'm going to find a verse that kind of has to do with that. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to rip that verse out of context and I'm going to use it kind of as a proof text. That's what that's called. Proof texting. You're, you're taking a text out of context to prove the thing that you already wanted to say. Um, what we want to do is we want to give the context control. So context is king. And so uh, what do I mean when I say context? I mean the historical context, which this is the the setting of of the writing. So the setting of the book. This is the culture um, that's surrounding that. So who is this book written to? 
um, what was that culture like? So the uh, Book of Romans, you probably guess, is written to a Greco-Roman culture. Well, what were, what were elements of that culture that would influence the way that people would hear uh, what Paul is writing in the Book of Romans? Um, how, how was the family viewed? How, were, uh, how was the marriage relationship viewed? How was the working relationship viewed? What, what, was, what was the, um, uh, how to put it, the social hierarch hierarchy viewed? Like, for us in America, we have a very different political system. We have a very different um, social hierarchy, uh, as it were. Um, we, we can be relatively uh, fluid in moving up and down even socioeconomic uh, positions. So you could go from, from being in poverty to being more blue collar to being more white collar to being more upper class, like stuff like that. There's a lot of mobility that we have that that culture may not have uh, may not have been able to enjoy. And so uh, the culture, the occasion, what was the, what was the reason? Why, why was this book written to these people? It's answering that question, uh, which really helps you understand like the points of emphasis of the text. Um, the geography is, is an important thing. Uh, and honestly, ge the, the geographical setting of, of books um, is probably one of my most neglected areas of Bible study. Um, part of it is because uh, geography to me has always been boring. And so, uh, so I don't, I, I have a map in our living room. That's about as much geography as I generally get, but it can really impact the way that you understand a text of the Bible. So take, for example, um, the, the letter to, and we'll get to this a little bit later, but the letter in Revelation to the church of Laodicea, the, ge the geographical uh, context of where, of where Laodicea is really is important in understanding when, um, when John is using this metaphor of hot water and cold water, because you have uh, Laodicea being in this kind of triad of cities. So think of this like, uh, this like, triangle of cities where you have Laodicea, you have uh, Heropolis, and you have Colossae kind of right here, and then Laodicea is right here. And these two cities, one from one city flowed uh, hot springs, and from another city flowed uh, cold water springs. And so by the time that those two water sources would get to Laodicea, uh, whichever one, they would end up being lukewarm and pretty much uh, unusable. Both the hot water would be un unusable because it wasn't hot anymore, and both the cold water would be unusable because it wasn't cold anymore. Um, I, I won't get into this too much, but uh, that really impacts the way that, that that letter to the Church of Laodicea is interpreted. And a lot of times what happens is that um, we, we assume that being hot means being passionate and on fire. Uh, so what can happen is, is that uh, people who are preaching the letter to uh, the church in Laodicea will inadvertently end up saying, you don't want to be cold water. You want to be hot water. You want to be, you want to be on fire for God. You can't be lukewarm. You don't want to be cold. You don't want to be lukewarm. But really what that's saying is you want to be useful. Like cold water is also useful for purposes that cold water are that you want to use cold water for. You don't want to take a shower with cold water, but you certainly want it after you go for a long run. And so what can happen though, and misunderstand the, even the geography of it, we can begin to impose our own cultural like understandings that, well, you want to be on fire for God, which means you want to be hot for God, which means that only the hot water in this passage is, uh, is desirable. 
That's not what we're saying. So that's where the ge- the understanding of the geography can be helpful. Same thing with First Corinthians um, and uh, with it being a port city, um, stuff like that. So let's see here. Um, another thing, so the political climate, prominent industry. Uh, yeah, what, what was the main industry of that town? So if, if, uh, if Paul was writing a book to the church in Cedar Falls, uh, it would probably be help. And, and somebody found that book a thousand years later, it would probably be helpful for those people to know uh, that John Deere is in Cedar Falls, right? It'd probably be helpful for them to know that John Deere is a major industry in the Cedar Falls Waterloo area. Um, and so that would be helpful. It, it would probably impact the the illustrations, the analogies, um, the metaphors that Paul would have used if he was writing a book to us with a major industry um, like John Deere uh, and agriculture just in general with Iowa. So um, yeah, the setting, the culture, the occasion, geography, political climate, prominent industry. Um, So here's a few uh, tools. So you go, how in the world am I supposed to know these things? Like this isn't in the introductory Paul usually doesn't lay these things out or the biblical writers don't generally lay these things out right at the beginning of their book. Um, so how in the world do I go about finding these, like understanding these things about whatever text that I'm uh, studying? Here's just a few. I've got gnats like somewhere in this room. So if you see me doing this, I'm not going crazy. I'm trying to kill a gnat. Um, so we've got the introductory sections of uh of Bible commentaries or even of like study Bibles. If you got a study Bible, usually there'd be maybe a couple paragraphs at the beginning um, of whatever book you're studying. That's helpful to read that. Uh, I, I would say um, in my process, uh, I'm totally good with reading um, introductory things like that. Uh, even before I read the text, because it helps me understand more while I'm reading the text. Um, That's different than constantly reading the commentary notes that are at the, maybe at the bottom of your study Bible along the way. That's very different. So utilize these tools and resources to help you understand the, these context things of the book. Um, But some of these resources, you have to force yourself to not use parts of them when they start to uh, begin to explain meaning. Okay. Uh, that short circuits your process. All of a sudden you outsource, um, understanding the meaning of the text to a commentator or to a, a study Bible when really, um, grab the things that help you understand the context of the book and then read the passage for yourself, study the passage for yourself, and then come back around towards the end and double check your own study to make sure you're still on the rails. Okay, so um, introductory sections of Bible commentaries and of, uh, and of study Bibles. Um, you've got Bible encyclopedias and, uh, and dictionaries. And so this kind of helps you um, uh, understanding like biblical words. Obviously the dictionaries will help you with that. Um, the encyclopedias can help. Uh, with words, also with with um, with concepts or cultural things uh, that are in there. Here's just a list of some helpful um, online resources that uh, that I've used over the years. Um, Bible study tools uh, is really helpful. If you go to the top of their website, um, it's got well, it's 
okay it's it's sub it's bible study tools but if you click on the study tab uh, what drops down is there's like a library you can look at commentaries concordances dictionaries encyclopedias um, if you want to pretend like you know greek i wouldn't suggest it but there's lexicons there um, that's different than leprechauns that's not the same thing uh, but <laughs> i'd probably stay away from the lexicons if you're not acquainted with how to use those but that'll have some commentaries there um, and some dictionaries that are helpful um, another one the bible project uh, the bible project for what it this is too strong of a way to say it uh, for what it lacks in depth. It makes up for exponentially in clarity. Okay. And so the Bible project is really, really helpful. Um, especially if you're just, you know, dipping your toe into studying a new book of the Bible. Um, they've got some fantastic kind of overview videos that uh, if you got a short attention span, the Bible project is like the best because the, it's, I mean, it's like a 10 minute video and they animate it really cool and it looks great. And, and they do a, they do a good job for what it is. It's fantastic. Now it's not the most, uh, don't let that be the, the height of your, uh, we'll call it scholarly work. Um, but Bible project is super helpful, uh, in getting that kind of like flyover view of a book. Um, I'll, I'll skip Logos for right now. Uh, blue letter Bible. Um, is a great resource uh, they really need to update their website their website is pretty terrible just aesthetically but um, this is more uh, if you can figure out how to navigate through it this is really helpful if you're really into like word studies and so um, they've the way that they lay out their uh, the their text is you can go right through the text and it'll lay out like um, basically links it to a strong uh, exhaustive concordance where it kind of breaks down like the Greek meaning and it's all just one click so you can really begin to like dive deep into the into the original meaning of the words that are being used um, yeah so I'll go back to Logos real quick uh, one of the things that I used to get nervous about when when I would kind of like put out um, resource suggestions for people is I, I, I didn't want people to think that in order to know your Bible, you had to spend a lot of money, right? Like, because some of these resources, like Logos, uh, for example, um, I think, I think just to get into it, you're probably looking at around a hundred bucks. Um, and it, it goes from a hundred dollars and it jumps real fast, uh, to, multi thousands of dollars and a lot of that's based on um on the tools that are available within the program and on uh basically on your library how many books are in your logos library um i would get nervous suggesting logos to people it was and it was only from a cost standpoint um i've since changed my mind on uh on being hesitant to suggest resources that might cost you money uh, because if you're anything like me, probably if you looked at your budget over the course of a year, uh, you could probably find some level of margin, uh, in your budget that you've, that you've ended up spending on things that are much less important than tools that help you understand the word of God. And so I, I'm not hesitant anymore to suggest a, a resource like Logos, knowing that it's like, yeah, you might make a $500 investment. Um, 
but if you learn how to use it and if you understand how to use it and you actually use a resource like that, uh, it's, it's almost invaluable, honestly. Like I use Logos, uh, every day might be an exaggeration, but it sure isn't close. Okay. And so, um, this isn't a sales pitch for Logos. I don't get anything for this. I, I wish I did. That'd be great. Um, but I don't, but honestly, like the, maybe if we have time at the end, I'll show you a little bit of it just to kind of like whet your appetite for it. But the way that it organizes information, all that stuff. Um, one of the things that I don't have on here is, uh, um, and let me just look it up here real quick. Cause it's actually a really, really great, um, resource. Here we go. Um, if you just Google uh, Ligonier top commentaries of every book of the Bible, so Ligonier, L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R, L-I-G-O-N-I-E-R, top commentaries of every book of the Bible, um, that it, it's exactly what it says it is. It gives you a list. So let's just say, um, so salt company is in Ephesians. So I'm just clicking here on Ephesians and it's got, Oh, perfect. Uh, it's got number one, Peter O'Brien, the letter to the Ephesians. Number two, uh, Harold Honer, uh, Ephesians and exegetical commentary. Number three, AT Lincoln. Like it gives you, uh, this one, it gives you the top five the top five commentaries that uh, Ligonier Ministries, which was started by R.C. Sproul, which he's just a boss. He's uh, he's not alive anymore, but well, he's not alive on earth anymore. We'll put it that way. Uh, he's just a boss. And they've done a great job like compiling the top commentaries for every book that you would want. I don't generally recommend that people get like one commentary that, that has every book of the Bible. Um, I just haven't found those to be uh, super helpful. They're usually because you're trying to cram 66 books of commentary into one book. Uh, they tend to just not go in depth enough to actually to be as helpful as you would want them to be. They tend to just kind of be more flyover, which honestly you get a lot of that from the Bible project anyway. So usually what I do is I just say, if someone's like, Hey, what's a good commentary to get? I usually ask, well, what book are you reading? Um, because depending on what book you're reading will generally depend on what, uh, on what I'll suggest for a commentary. Um, kind of the top two that I generally use, uh, now this is in series. Okay. So, um, is the pillar new Testament commentary series. Uh, and so now the, these are books for individual books, but pillar new Testament commentary, um, is one that I, is one that I use a lot. Um, uh, the new, let's see, the new American commentary uh, has commentaries for individual books. Uh, most of it, the new, they do have some Old Testament though, but most of it's the New Testament. Um, and then, uh, and then the New International Greek. Uh, what's the rest of the acronym? Uh, the New International Greek Testament Commentary (NIGTC) is one that I use quite a bit. Um, did I so? Did you have in your binders, um, if you looked through it, I think I included uh, introductory sections uh, of a commentary for the book of Colossians. Are those, are those in your binders? Does someone know right off the top of their head? 
maybe it's not. Um, what I'm going to do is, I think I wait to email those out for this session, actually. I've got the the introductory sections of the book of Colossians from the Pillar New Testament commentary series uh, that I'm going to email you out uh, this week. So that way you can have that section from the commentary, one of the commentaries that we actually used for when we went through the book of uh, Colossians at Candeo. So um, hopefully that's helpful for you. Uh, let me get back to my notes here. All right. So, so we want to give the context control of our text. That's the historical context. So again, that's setting culture, occasion, geography, political climate, prominent industry. That's those are all things that these study tools are uh, not not just beneficial but necessary uh, to be able to actually understand the culture and the setting of the text. The other context um, that we want to give control, uh, so we give the historical context control and we give the literary context control. And what this means um, is that we have to give, we have to know what the book is about in order to understand how the passage fits within the book as a whole. Uh, hopefully this picture will help you. So literary context we want to we want to study it with these concentric circles. Okay, so we're looking at our passage. We've we've got our passage. You don't want to just look at the passage that you were given. So if you've got um, Colossians three, like one to seventeen, um, or something like that. Yeah, one to seventeen. You don't want to only study Colossians three, one to seventeen. Uh, you want to study it, but you don't want to only study it. Uh, what you want to do is you want to, hopefully you've read the whole book in as few of sittings as possible. You've gone to your main text. So Colossians 3, 1 to 17. But then what you want to do is you want to read around it uh, because chapter 3, verses 1 to 17 sits within a section of text that generally there is a flow of thought. And so you want to read chapter 2. To really get like okay so how did I get to chapter 3 you want to read you want to read verse 18 and the rest of chapter 3 because you want to go okay so what what is Paul saying here uh, that he may be he may be using this section to set himself up to then say this you want to be able to understand that that's been the thing that has been the most necessary uh, in our parable series on Sunday mornings uh, because generally what we're doing for what we've been doing every time what we've been doing is we've been parachuting in to a section of of one of the gospels and looking at a parable but that parable sits within a context that is around it so for example this sunday um we're going to be in uh luke 15 uh verses 11 through 32 talking about the parable of the prodigal son that's the last parable in our parable series um What's, what's really important in understanding and, and being able to understand the meaning of that parable is you got to go back and look at the beginning of chapter 15 and see, okay, who who is around Jesus when he's giving this parable? And it really helps you understand like, oh, this isn't only about the prodigal son. This is also about the older brother because who he's talking to right here are uh, – What's happening is that the is that there are Pharisees and scribes around him who are really 
who are grumbling that Jesus would dine with sinners. Uh, yeah, with sinners. And so that's exactly what the older brother does is that the older brother begins to grumble that the father has shown so much grace toward the undeserving son. And so that's really key. Uh, that will be really key in understanding the meaning of the parable because, well, we wouldn't know that if we only jumped into verses 15 through 35. So you want to go your passage, immediate context. Um, so verses before it, verses after it, uh, rest of a larger section. So that's where I'd go like chapter before it, chapter after it, uh, the rest of the book. Um, hopefully you're able to understand that from having read the whole book. And it's again, I'm going to keep, I'm, I'm being uh, repetitive on purpose, uh, reading the the whole book in as few sittings as possible. And then the rest of the Bible. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that rest of the Bible part. Cause that sounds, that can sound fairly daunting. So, and I'll, I'll hopefully try to help you understand what I mean by that. So what we want to do as we're seeking to, to find the meaning that exists within the text, as we, as we're looking to exegete the scriptures is that uh, we're going, we're going on something called the interpretive journey. So just, just humor me here a little bit. Um, it might be a little cheesy, but it's been helpful for me in understanding and forcing myself to kind of follow this progression of study so that I don't do the thing that we want to avoid, which is jump immediately to application without without going through the right steps of interpretation. So what we want to do in the interpretive journey, we'll call it that, and I've got pictures, so don't get your hopes up. They're pretty terrible, but that's about as good as you're going to get, honestly. So uh, it's like a step up from stick figure, right? Um, <laughs> what we want to do is we want to grasp the text in their town. That's what we've been talking about this whole time, uh, understanding the historical context, uh, and also understanding the literary context, but that historical context uh, is really important. And so, uh, again, we we do this by observing what uh, has by looking around um, the text and looking at what's happened before in the text, what's happened after the text, observing all that we can, doing our homework on understanding the the occasion, uh, who is this book written to, what what's what's going on that kind of prompted the writing of this book. Um, what's the, what's the political, cultural, all that stuff. We're doing all that. And then what we're doing is we're trying to summarize what the text could have meant to the biblical audience. Okay. And so here, here's what this looks like. Um, you want to try to use past tense verbs and avoid personal pronouns. So here, here's what that means. Um, what you want to do is go, uh, Paul was writing to the, to the believers in Colossae because this was happening to them um, and he was encouraging them to do this. Like you're using them, you're using they, you're, you're, you're really speaking like, like toward them, toward their situation, uh, toward the action steps that like Paul is like admonishing those believers uh, to do. Um, you're not, um, you're not immediately going, Oh, the meaning of this text is that I should, X, Y, Z, uh, you're jumping straight to personal application at that point. Like pay close attention to your pronouns. Use a lot of they, he, them, because application is when we start to get to the I, we, us of that, if that's helpful. So, um, 
measure the width of the river to cross. And so again, this is that that historical uh, that historical context. There's a there's a divide between us and the biblical audience. Their culture is very different than ours. We need to understand uh, just exactly how wide uh, this actually is. And so this was actually um, one of the difficulties in. Uh, when we when we spent about half a year in the book of Hebrews, uh, this was actually one of the hardest aspects of of teaching through that book was that there's there was actually very little um, very little to go off of, and so uh, not exactly knowing who wrote the book, not exactly knowing. Uh, who the book was written to. It's more kind of like, well, if it was written at this time period, then it was probably written to these people. Like there's a lot of unknowns in as far as the, as far as the historical context of the book of Hebrews, um, which made it difficult, but obviously didn't make it impossible. Um, it just, it just, sometimes you have to do a little bit more work in understanding that to help you in your interpretation. Um, so we want to measure the width of the river to cross we want to cross the principalizing bridge. And so uh, here's what this means. Um, even though this book was written to, uh, to a different audience at a different time with a different culture, there still will exist within the text uh, general principles that, that still apply uh, irrespective of time, audience, and culture, if that makes sense. And so, um, so you kind of have to zoom out a little bit, uh, because, uh, so, so say, um, so take, take the book of Hebrews. One of the things that we, uh, that we were, um, not assuming one of the, one of the things that the audience of the book of Hebrews was going through, which, which we were saying, uh, we think that those were Jewish believers. Uh, when you get into uh, chapter 10, uh, they were going through intense persecution because of their faith um, in, intense physical persecution. So the plundering of their homes. Uh, yeah. Think like physical things were happening to them because of uh, their, their following of Jesus and their identifying as believers um, that's not exactly the, uh, the shared experience of most of us in this zoom call, right? Most of us aren't experiencing intense physical persecution. Um, what we got to do though, is that doesn't mean, well, that, that, well, that book has nothing for us. What we have to do is we have to zoom out and go, okay, uh, it's, it's not intense physical persecution. Um, what are other ways uh, that we as believers in uh, 21st century America can be uh, can be ostracized and discriminated against because of our faith. Uh, and as we're seeking to teach this text to other people, we have to try to think through, okay, we're, we may not suffer in these ways for our faith, but what are some ways that could actually uh, either be currently happening or uh, potentially happen in the future for us as 21st century believers uh, in America? So thinking through the principalizing bridge um, and helping people cross that. This is where the, um, called the biblical map. This was that last circle in those concentric circles. Um, what we want to do is we want to think through, okay, the meaning of this text, how would they have heard, how would the original audience given the culture have heard um, 
these words, what's the principle that can apply across cultures and across time? Uh, and what does the rest of the Bible have to say about this? Um, this is where, <laughs> uh, I'll, I, th I think I can say, say it this boldly, pretty much every heresy, like um, every deviation from uh, historical Orthodox Christianity uh, has come from the Bible. Now, what I mean by that is that it has come from people who will read a particular section of the Bible, will only look at that section of the Bible, and won't consider what the rest of the Bible has to say about what that section is saying theologically on its own, especially in areas of confusion. And so, um, so what this means is that we need to use the Bible to interpret the Bible. And this is the beauty of scripture, the, the, co the coherency of, of the Bible is that, uh, is that even though the Bible is written with multiple authors over a, a, a long period of time, uh, in our minds at least, there is such a beautiful cohesion to the, to the teachings of Scripture, all from the Old Testament through the New Testament, that we, if we understand our Bibles well, and if we understand our Bibles broadly, uh, we can begin to use, like when we get to a sticky portion of Scripture that it's like, I don't quite understand what that means. Um, we can use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's like, okay, so where else in scripture is this talked about? Is this theological concept talked about so that I can better understand and, and be rounded out in my understanding of what's, what is the whole scripture? What's the whole counsel of God, God's word have to say about this? I mean, quite honestly. Um, so uh, last Thursday, so last Sunday, I showed you the, uh, my process as I was going through Ephesians one, uh, last Thursday. So what is that? Four days ago. Um, I preached that message at Saul company on Ephesians one verses three through 14, which has in it the doctrine of predestination and election. Um, one of the things that is, that can be difficult for people on the doctrine of predestination and election is that uh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to be real graceful on this is um, some people will get very opposed uh, and very offended uh, with a clear teaching of the doctrine of election. And I think part of it, not all of it, there are people who know their Bibles who, who land in different ways. Um, but I'm guessing there are, I would say maybe a majority of, of, uh, of college students. Part of the reason why they're so offended is because they don't have a framework through which to filter, through which to consult what the whole Bible has to say about uh, predestination and election. Um, they might hear a message like what, uh, and you could go listen, it, it's on iTunes right now. Uh, Tim literally just posted it. So you can go listen to last week's salt message uh, and pretty much up until minute 25 uh, is I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain both from Ephesians one and from a couple other passages. It couldn't get exhaustive uh, on um, the reality of the reason why uh, we as believers have 
responded in faith to God is because God had first chosen us before the foundation of the world. That's the doctrine of election. Um, that's very offensive if you don't understand the rest of your Bible. Um, it's, it's really offensive just in general, can be, but it's such a beautiful doctrine of grace if you understand how election and predestination fits within the rest of the scope of scripture. If you understand Deuteronomy 7 in God's choosing of the people of Israel, if you understand John 6 in Jesus thanking God that, that God has given him believer and like Jesus actually accomplished something. He didn't just make salvation possible. He made salvation actual for the people that God had chosen to given uh, to Christ. Um, there, there's other second uh, Corinthians four, six, the, the creation uh, the use of the creation narrative and God saying, let light shine through darkness. And that's the description that Paul uses in second Corinthians to describe the salvation event um, where the, the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ shines into our hearts. Like there's so much throughout the, the biblical map of scripture, the whole of scripture that really helps round out the doctrine of election and predestination that really makes it a beautiful doctrine um, that, uh, that isn't meant to uh, in, to cause a fight. It's really meant to make us worship uh, God who has shown such extravagant grace to such undeserving people purely because he chose to show love. Like the fact that he chose to show mercy to any um, is a, is a tremendous act of grace. And so this is why consulting the biblical map is important because especially when you get into uh, potentially sticky doctrines like election, let's say um, you really need to also understand your Bible to know, okay, where, where else are these uh, kinds of things found? I will say this real quick. You go, uh, I haven't memorized my whole Bible. So how in the world am I supposed to do that? Um, <laughs> I go, uh, give yourself some grace. Um, we don't read the Bible to finish it. We read the Bible to know God. And this is a lifelong journey that we are on. And so if you feel like totally inadequate, you're like, consult the biblical map. I'm just that's why I'm in this class. I'm just learning how to study my Bible. Like I'm just, uh, this is, I'm learning so much. This is like a fire hose. I go, awesome. Give yourself some grace here. Study the Bible in community with other people who do know the Bible better. And honestly, this is where uh, commentaries can be helpful. This is where reading uh, books from a lot of old dead guys is really helpful because the Holy Spirit has worked in the lives of Christians who have uh, who have been and had been Christians longer than you and I have been alive. And they took the time to write down what the spirit uh, has shown them in the, in the scriptures. And so we can gain a lot of understanding uh, of like the whole counsel of God's word uh, through the hard work of other people and through the work of the Holy spirit in other people. Now, I don't say that to short circuit you in that. I don't say that like, well, you don't need to read your Bible. You can just read commentaries. I'm not saying that, but what I am saying is give yourself some grace, give yourself some time, uh, have some perspective and go, this is a lifelong process. I hope in five years, I'm able to consult the biblical map much better than I even am today. Because in five years, I will have read the Bible more than I have up to this point in my life today. So that's how that uh, can be helpful. Um, and this, like I said, this is where commentaries can come in and be helpful kind of uh, towards the back end um, and understanding. So that way, you know, you're not going off the rails. Um, yeah. Uh, I'll skip the example of that. Maybe we'll get back to it. 
probably not. I want to have more time for Q&A than I did last week. I'm so bad at time management on these things. Okay, so thank you for bearing with me here. Um, finally, grasp the text in their town. So this is, uh, this is the application. Uh, grasp the text in our town. So this is the application portion that we're going to get to next week. How should Christians today live in light of, of, the, of the principles that are found in the text? Um, that we've been studying. So uh, there will usually um, be, there there will be numerous applications to this, um, but we're looking for that main emphasis of the text. uh, And we're trying as best as we can to hear that main emphasis through the ears of the original audience. So um, real quick, two things to be, to be, uh, to be aware of. Um, in this whole process. So done in isolation, okay? Um, studying the Bible is, is a beautiful gift from God. Studying the Bible is exciting. Studying the Bible is uh, should produce joy. Uh, the most biblically literate people should be the most expressive worshipers of God because we've seen and we, we, we've seen God, we've tasted deeply, we've, we've understood greatly. People, people who exegete the Bible and, and go through the hard work for this uh, should be the most obedient people. Like, and we'll get into application, but like, like the, work, the work of the Holy Spirit through God's word in us should actually result in something. Um, what can happen in, uh, in really nerding out on Bible study is uh, two things can happen. One is that you're uh, done in isolation, exegesis, so this whole process can lead to teaching that's either overly intellectual or merely imperative. Okay, so overly intellectual. Here's what happens when, um, when somebody uh, who really enjoys the study in the exegesis um, falls in the overly intellectual ditch. Here's what happens. Uh, They view the message or the teaching as simply a storage container to house all of the interesting things you found during your study. Uh, You're going to find a lot of really interesting things during your study, and it's going to seem like everything's really, really important um, because in one sense it is because it has to do with the text. Like this is the Bible. How could it not be important? You know, um, there, there, <laughs> there is an, there is an order of priority here though. Like, like I said, we, we want to find the main emphasis of the text and, and as much as we can let the, let the thrust and the flow of the message be leading us toward the main emphasis and not get sidetracked on these little tangents where, uh, it might be interesting to us, um, but maybe it doesn't really clearly support the main emphasis of the text. Um, and before you know it, all of a sudden, you, most of your message has been taken up by just giving interesting facts that you learned along the way. Uh, another way that this can happen too is that um, basically a sermon can end up being a running commentary where really it's just kind of like you're just kind of making observ like you're just saying the observations that you made along the way. And so you just go from verse to verse to verse, just saying all the interesting things that you found in each verse, as opposed to really uh, pointing people to the text to push them towards the main emphasis. That's, that's, that's what can happen. Um, I've done that before. Any, anybody who's, uh, who starts off in teaching the Bible in really any, any way and in any context, you'll probably end up doing that. Um, 
but now you'll be able to notice it when you do it. So don't hate yourself for doing it. Um, just try to not do it as much as possible. Um, the other ditch, so if that's the overly intellectual ditch, the other ditch is um, action steps outside of the proper biblical or theological context can be misapplied. Um, and uh, one of the, ex an example of this um, could be, uh, so, um, so some, some churches, if they're doing a building campaign, will jump to Second Corinthians eight and nine as really the as really the thrust for like, well, here's why you should give because generosity is talked about a lot in Second Corinthians eight and nine. Um, in the in the uh, in the merely imperative approach, um, what some people in their zeal to get people to give to a building campaign. Uh, what some people can miss is that Second Corinthians eight and nine isn't in reference to building a building. It's in reference to taking a collection for needy saints in Jerusalem, right? Like so, this wasn't in reference to like be generous so that we can build this thing for the for the gathered church to meet in. It was no, there's these needy believers in a town that in a different town that need help, you know, and so there's a collection taken in order to help needy believers because what happens is is that you go uh is that you see in the old testament that um that religion that uh we'll call it we'll call it christian religion for uh the sake of this like is a come and see religion right it's like there's god dwells in one place there's a tabernacle there's a temple it's a come and see like if you wanted to interact and experience god with his people you had to be in a particular location in the new testament christianity is a go and tell religion and so what can happen is if if, if churches start to get desperate and trying to get people to give towards a particular capital campaign what they can start to do is misapply um proper biblical or theological um action stuff it, it, it can be misapplied because that's not exactly what that's talking about now the general principle of generosity certainly is a an appropriate application um but in the merely imperative approach uh you can get sometimes what can happen is uh is if you get so focused on the thing that you really really like care about you can start to overemphasize a particular application. Uh, and I think at times that can do detriment to the actual meaning of the text. Like the actual meaning of second Corinthians eight and nine isn't uh, give money to this particular thing. The, the principalizing bridge really is uh, in the, in the generosity category, um, which is probably the thing to go at before you start trying to apply it to only particular uh, scenarios. So uh, how, the, the question you could ask is how do I avoid um, falling into these two ditches real quick uh, ask the question as you get to the end and as you think through um, as you think through your interpretation and as you think through your application how does the gospel affect my understanding of this text we live uh, in the in the shadow of the cross like we are we are post-resurrection uh, Bible students, um, and honestly, even in studying the in studying the Old Testament, everything is either foreshadowing or in the shadow of the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, how does the the gospel affect my understanding of this text? And this helps us even in in studying uh, Old Testament passages as well. Um, and then, secondly, 
uh, how does my text anticipate or reflect upon the gospel? That's what I'm talking about foreshadowing or in the shadow of. So how does this text anticipate the gospel of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, resurrection, uh, or how does it reflect upon the gospel? That will help us uh, be be gospel-centered um, teachers of the Bible, where, where we're not just trying to tag Jesus onto the end of everything, but we're really trying to understand, okay, how does my understanding of this, uh, how does my understanding of the gospel coincide with my understanding of this and then helping people connect those things. Cause really uh, the, the good news of the gospel ought to be the motivation for any imperative that we give. Um, and, and that's, that's where we get uh, long, uh, long lasting, like where it's not willpower based, this is grace based um, obedience. So uh, we're not going to go through that. So real quick, once again, and then we'll go to questions. Grasp the text in their town. Measure the width of the river to cross. Cross the principalizing bridge. Consult the biblical map. Give yourself grace in that. Study the Bible in community. Um, and then grasp the text in their town. So that's our interpretive journey. Uh, like the observation, if you're not used to it, it's gonna, it'll take you a while to get into the rhythm of uh, of studying the Bible this way. So that is, hey, it's before nine, which was better than last week. All right. That was a dump. Like that was like a fire hydrant. Blah. All right. So questions on the interpretive journey or questions on uh, anything you found along the way in observation from last week? I have one question. Um, it was probably we were talking about earlier with like resources. Um, what do you think about like got questions? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, usually that ends up ends up showing up um, in a, like if you end up googling something, got questions is usually kind of toward the top of a, a list. I honestly don't know a lot about um, about how those answers are come about. I tend to I tend to try to avoid Googling questions that I have as much as possible. Um, that usually what I'm Googling is if, is if I have like a vague reference of a verse that I think goes with what I'm studying, I'll be like, ah, oh, man, what, I, I know the wording of some of the verse, but I don't know the reference. I'll usually Google that. Um, as, as it relates to like theology, like theological questions, I usually try to go to trusted resources. Um, I don't know enough about God questions to, to say, that I trust that. Um, yeah. That's probably about as much as I could say on it. Any other questions? Comments? Snide remarks? Uh -oh. I have a question. I can't hear Zach. Zach, oh. sorry, just a sec. What? I can't hear Zach. Oh no. Here, maybe uh, type it in the chat, Zach, and then uh, I think Mary, were you were you going to ask one? Yeah, I was wondering if you could give an example of a passage where you could get caught in the 
the details, but not the main point. I don't remember what you said about that exactly, but mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I think I'm wondering how, like, what's the purpose of those little details? Is it all the point to the main point of the passage or does the Holy Spirit use those sometimes as well? To Right, right. That's a great question. Um, in the application thing for next week, I think one of the things that, um, that I talk about is, uh, is almost like the way to organize the priority of the things, uh, particularly to like teach about, um, I mean, obviously the details of the text are important in, uh, in understanding the text. Like if it wasn't important, it wouldn't be there. Um, so really more what I'm referencing is like when it comes to like what you actually like teach people, uh, there's an order of priority that, that I tend to go, okay. Uh, I think in, I think next week I use the analogy of like, like rungs on a ladder, uh, whichever. So like if the main point of the text is like this rung, I'm going to want to try to grab the rungs that are closest to that rung to get me there. Um, as soon as I start going further and further away from the main point, uh, that's kind of where I go. That's interesting, but I only have a certain amount of time that I have these people like in their attention. And so in order to best utilize that, to really pack the punch of the main emphasis, I actually have to leave that interesting detail on the chopping block. Um, so for example, uh, most of my recent example, most of my examples are from most recent messages was, um, uh, was last week, I, in talking about predestination and election, um, there was a, a passage in, um, in Acts chapter, oh, I had it up here, just in Acts chapter four, um, where, uh, <laughs> that is a really great apologetic for uh, predestination and election and understanding what that is. Um, it would have taken a lot of time to explain Acts chapter four. I would have basically had to exegete Acts chapter four in order to help exegete at Ephesians chapter one. And I mean, if you go listen to the message, it's already 41 minutes. If I would have done that with Acts chapter four, it would have just blown that message time out of the water. And for the time that it would have spent, uh, the benefit, so-so, right? And so um, to your question, Mary, uh, what I'm mostly referring to is like in, in determining what we ultimately end up teaching people, uh, that's where I start to prioritize how close how necessary is under is understanding this detail to understand the main point of the text, if that makes sense. Can you hear me now, Jake? Oh yeah. We got Zach. Sorry. No, you're good, man. Uh, so my question was kind of in the same vein. Um, so as a pastor, wouldn't you have um, some leeway in, let's say, your church is uh, struggling with a particular thing within a section? It may not be the main thrust of that section of Scripture, but you can choose to teach upon the more small, nuanced mm -hmm. portion of the text just because as a pastor of the church, you feel the need to 
uh, emphasize that within your body. Yeah, totally. That I'm really glad you brought that up, Zach, because, um, so yes, absolutely to that. And that's, that's where like, like knowing the people you're talking, like knowing your audience is really important. Um, and so if, if you're, if you're speaking to people that you don't know really well, like you want to do your best to try to talk to people who do know them really well, um, to help you get an understanding of that context. And usually when I do that, Zach, uh, cause that, that will happen. Absolutely. Um, what I'll, what I'll at least try to do though, is to almost like make it obvious that this is an aside. Like, like I'll say something like, now this isn't the main point of the text, but this is worth camping out on for just a second. And then I'll go and talk about that. Um, really just that caveat, like this isn't, isn't the main point, but I just want to say this helps. Cause one of the things I want to do is uh, in preaching is, is also not only give messages, but also teach people how to study their Bible, like while they're listening to the message. And so that's where it's really important to keep pushing people back into the text. That's where it's even phrases like this isn't the main point, but this is, this is worth mentioning, like helps people understand like, Oh, that's not a main point thing. Um, but that doesn't mean it's totally unimportant, you know, and that really will be contextual. Uh, so you're, you're totally right. Like there are times where pastorally it's worth camping out on a, on a minor detail, uh, because it's most helpful and appropriate for the people that you're talking to. So yeah, I'm really, I'm really glad you brought that up. Yeah. I got a question. Yeah. So what is the best way, like how can you stop yourself from getting caught up in a minor detail that, well, I'm saying this wrong, but like the things that aren't the main point, how do you stop yourself from getting caught up in those thinking they are the main point? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, usually, uh, <laughs> there's, um, usually that for me that happens. Um, I'm trying to think through how much to show you. So, uh, one of the things we'll talk about when we get to uh, organizing messages is uh, a way the, the way of organization that I use is uh, is what's called a subject complement um, framework. And so, basically, what I'm doing is I'm I'm putting the text and I'm writing it as a sentence. So, what is this text talking about? What question is this text answering? That's a subject, and then I write the complement as the answer. Um, that helps a lot in me going, if I can only, if I have to give the main point of this text in one sentence, that, that forces me to try to, to have to filter through all the stuff. Cause it can't be a long sentence cause no one's going to remember it. Right. So it's gotta be one sentence. And that's usually when I start to recognize, like that might be nuance that I'm just getting too involved in. That's where commentaries help a lot too. Generally, if I'm, if I'm more interested in something than, than uh, a group of commentaries is interested in going into, that's when I start to know, like, I think, I think if that was really important, they would have chased that rabbit further down the trail than they actually ended up doing. Um, and so that can be a helpful kind of litmus test as well. Uh, part of it comes with time too. Um, the, the reality is, is that the Bible isn't a, 
isn't a textbook and it's not a science book and it's it's not a uh, it's not a history book like sometimes the bible isn't interested in answering the questions that we're trying to find answers to if that makes sense and so uh some some of this comes with time of going uh, I think I might actually be trying to find an answer that the bio, that the biblical writer and therefore the Holy Spirit wasn't actually trying to answer. Um, even though it might be a fun thought experiment, I might just be getting caught up in this uh, more than maybe I should. Um, I'm not trying to squelch curiosity. Uh, I think force yourself to write the main the main point of that passage in one sentence, and we'll get to how to do that. Um, and then also consulting commentaries and seeing how far do they run uh, trying to chase rabbits. That might be interesting to me. That can be helpful too. There's been a lot of times where that's kind of, I've gone, Oh, I thought something was there. There actually wasn't something there. Uh, commentaries have helped me with that a lot. That's a great question, Mick. That, that happens a lot in, uh, in a, probably in connection groups, honestly, where people want to get really focused on a really nuanced part of, of a passage or they, or they start asking questions that, that either have nothing to do with the text or that the text wasn't answering. Right. So, yeah. All right. Thanks. Hey Jake, I got a question. Yeah. Right. Uh, I know, I know exactly where you're sitting, by the way. Oh, really? Which is great. Yeah. I guess if you my house, you recognize the so, cabinet, right? So does Carly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, uh, you mentioned about referencing different passages and the way you want to show the context appropriately and not misrepresent it. How do you balance that during a message? Because you will not be preaching on a passage and end up referencing 20 different passages and then you get done, you're completely out of time. You didn't talk about the one of interest. Right. It's giving context versus also giving cross references to show where it ties in the rest of the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I usually try to pick the cross reference that requires the least amount of additional explanation. If that makes sense. So kind of like the acts four one, I was like, this helps me understand the text Ephesians one better. Uh, this would take a lot of time to help make that connection for the listener. And so that's where I go. That's that, that would take way too much time. Whereas second Corinthians four, six uh, in explaining the, in explaining salvation as being a creation event initiated by God in illuminating the light of the gospel onto the heart, that's pretty relatively straightforward. Um, and so that requires less explanation. So I'm going to choose the text that requires uh, less explanation um, for the sake of time uh, and then reference it. Um, Cause I, I really, I love, I love whenever anybody uses cross references um, because it brings in that biblical map aspect of things. Um, so long as those cross, so long as those cross references aren't uh, ripped out of context and don't actually mean what they're being used for, or so long as they don't become a side tangent. Now I have to explain this text for an extended period of time in order for you to understand how it connects kind of thing. Um, I usually leave those on the chopping block. All right if they take too much time. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I love that. All right, thanks, Jake. Yeah, Ryan, totally. I have another question regarding um, like the reading we did. I believe it was chapter eight was this week. Am I right about that? Uh, yes, chapter eight. Yeah. Okay, well, I guess the way I word it is, I, I think I just kind of like got like a, when I was reading the book, I kind of like felt a lot of, um, or just read, I guess, um, a lot of like ways to kind of present yourself in teaching, um, mm -hmm. kind of like walking up confidently and kind of like almost, I talked a lot about the intro and the end, kind of almost like you would like be reading a book. And I think in my mind, I sometimes struggle with that because I think back to like Paul and when he talks about how it's like, you know, it's not the, it's not the actual person preaching, but it's the message itself. And God can use um, me not in confidence, not in this. I feel like some conflicting in that, I guess, in my mind, mm -hmm. I'm just curious what, I don't know what your interpretation is of that. Cause I know there is some truth to actually presenting yourself well and having to, um, use strategies, I guess, to have people listen. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that connection is hard for me. So, yeah, yeah. And we'll get into that a little bit more, um, in the fifth week. That's a great question though. Yeah. Cause, uh, yeah, we don't want to be actors, right? This isn't an acting class uh, <laughs> and, and teaching and preaching isn't a isn't an act of acting um, and different people have different uh, interpretations of what's engaging, right? We all have different preferences. Um, I'd say that there's some kind of like base level thing. It's, it's basically what I tell, uh, what I tell our worship leaders is I say, um, our job is to eliminate distractions and our job isn't to, make people worship. Our job isn't to bring people before the throne of grace. Jesus did that and we're indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Like our job is to eliminate distractions so that uh, as much as we can, that the focus is uh, on the glory of God uh, through the lyrics that we're singing. I'd say in the same way with teaching, um, when it comes to like techniques and stuff like that, uh, I put it more in the elimination of distractions category than I do in the performance category. Um, so. Uh, that, early on, especially, I would I would send videos of some of my messages to a few different people, and I'd say, "Hey, can you just help me identify? Is there anything distracting about this? Like, I've got people helping me with the content side of things, from the presentation side of things. Is there anything that I do that makes you focus more on me doing that than you are on like what I'm saying?" and what you're seeing in scripture, you know? And uh, <laughs> I made the mistake of sending that to Claire Sabino one time because she's just delightfully honest. And so <laughs> it was like a, <laughs> I, I probably saw the email. It was like a list, you know, uh, but it was really helpful because it was like, okay, I'm not trying to be someone I'm not. God has gifted me with a particular personality and like all these things, which is different than everyone else. Um, and your personality is different than my, like, that's a beautiful thing to bring. Um, Shane Klein, my word, like that, we are very different in our presentation styles, but I'm engaged by his, uh, his awe at the scriptures. I mean, and so really it's like, 
is there anything that I'm doing that's distracting? Uh, and is, is there anything that I can do preemptively to try to eliminate distraction to the message? Um, that's kind of more where I'm at. Uh, you could get real nitpicky on like, don't wear stripes because this, like, whatever, whatever. I'll probably wear a graphic tee at Salt more than I would at Candeo, but more so because I don't think it'd be as distracting at Salt than it would be at Candeo. Maybe I'll do it at Candeo. I don't know. I've got an idea in the works for something that would be incredibly distracting, uh, but it'd be on purpose. And so um, we'll see if that actually pans out. That would be for the book of James, though. So we'll see. <laughs> Any other questions? All right. Well, as always, feel free to shoot me a message along the way. Um, I'm going to email out the, uh, the introductory portion of the book of Colossians from the Pillar New Testament commentary to, that will hopefully be helpful for you. Um, if I had to do it again, I would probably send that to you earlier than right now. So that way you'd have some of that in the back of your mind for the observation portion um, of you interacting with that text. But we are where we are. So I'll send that out. Um, like I said, I'll send out the video link. I'll send, I'll upload the two podcasts here next week. We're going to be talking about application. Um, so that's the Duval and Hayes, uh, chapter 13. And then, um, after that, we're starting to get more into the, like a little bit more of the nitty gritty of like actually crafting, uh, the message. We're still in the, in the understanding the text phase. So you're, we're very squarely in the in the hermeneutics portion of uh, of this class. Uh, in week four, we're gonna take a hard shift into more of the homiletics section, and then we'll also start talking uh, about how does this look when you're like writing a Bible study. So, for those of you who are like, yeah, I I'm not into the public speaking thing. That's totally great. I'm more into the Bible study, small group thing. Like we'll talk a little bit about how, how do we take these things and apply them a bit more in, into a written group dialogue format than in the, you know, monologue format that giving a message is. So uh, we'll get to that in week four a little bit more, but um, yeah, other than that, like I said, feel free to shoot me any questions along the way and yeah, have fun with the interpretation side of things. Hopefully, the process will be illuminating for you. So, but application next week, it'll be awesome. Anything else? Do you finish those M&Ms, Mick? Yeah, okay. Yes, I okay. finished the M&Ms, just unmuting my mic. Awesome, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Cool, well, thank you guys for logging in tonight and we'll see you next week. Same time, Thank you. same place. Who are you talking to? See ya. See ya.